Hello, everybody. Welcome to the supporter audio for Plus Heart Issue 3, titled Metagame. My name is Matt Demers. Thank you guys so much again for supporting this newsletter. Uh, because you guys pay for it, this is the verbal audio podcast version of this week's newsletter. Basically, with this uh, week's newsletter, I started with the idea of talking about um, Riot Games and the consolidation of media let's put it that way let's put it that way in terms of the um the lessening of choice and or the lessening of the illusion of choice or maybe the increase of the illusion of choice let me let me restart that basically i i when i started this i was like i want to talk about riot i want to talk about their anime series coming out on netflix i want to talk about how it's like different from like dota's um, anime series that came out on Netflix. I want to talk about how Riot have done a really good job of saturating a market um, in terms of uh, making the illusion of choice uh, present, where it's like, okay, you can choose to play all these different games, but you're still in the same Riot ecosystem. I also wanted to tie that into esports because teams have an interest in doing that as well. And the title of everything and kind of the framing device of all this also came from Facebook um, which you guys will see. I should probably just read the issue instead of explaining it here. Issue number three, plus heart, um, called metagame. The word metaverse is probably the most searched term this week as Facebook's company name changed to just meta. That sparked a lot of discussion. I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to have to do that thing where you look at a hot topic and throw your voice into the cacophony. I promise it'll be worth it, though. As a short version, a metaverse is an online network environment that can include 3D virtual worlds. However, a more important factor is that they become how everyone does everything related to their virtual lives. In Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash, where the term originated, users hooked up to a set of virtual reality goggles and experienced it in a first-person perspective. This was also furthered by the novel Ready Player One, where a similar VR setup was how humankind did anything, and those in poverty escaped their shitty situations by logging into the Oasis, which was the, the metaverse's name. I'm not so interested in the VR tech aspect of things because I've seen a dozen of, a dozen of, excuse me, because we've seen dozens of attempts at online virtual worlds, and Facebook's tech demo is probably going to add one more to the pile. I'm old enough to remember when courses were taught about Second Life and how brands opening stores in the, that environment was the next big thing. What I want to focus on is the centralization, or centralization effect that a metaverse would have and how we're already seeing it across online properties, video games, and brands. Years ago, I tweeted about how Overwatch was an extremely important intellectual property for Activision Blizzard, because it felt like a very modern aesthetic, and that's something that they sorely needed. This is like, as a sidebar, this is one of my like pet peeves, not pet peeves, pet projects, pet concepts, where it's like Diablo, Warcraft, Starcraft, very early nine, or sorry, late 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, whatever, very 90s and early 2000s in a aesthetic. And Blizzard really needed Overwatch because Overwatch feels modern. Um, okay. It was less about the game and more about developing characters, locations, and concepts that they could further use as a base. Arguably, they failed to further capitalize on this since Overwatch as an IP has been pretty quiet in terms of cultural relevance over the last couple of years. And the company as a whole seems to be a mess behind the scenes. Regardless, ActaBliz was very familiar with leveraging that things-you-know marketing. Uh, part of Hearthstone's original success was that it scratched the nostalgic feeling of release World of Warcraft, which eventually built into WoW Classic, and using Heroes of the Storm as a way to celebrate Blizzard characters. 
I personally don't think that Blizzard characters have a degree of love to warrant their own game, but to each their own. Riot did the same thing with the releases of Teamfight Tactics and Legends of Runeterra, which took the auto-battler and card game genre, pioneered in Dota 2's custom games and by Hearthstone, respectively, and used League of Legends character settings and concepts to furnish them. To many companies, their current goals involve creating ecosystems and keeping their consumers in them at all costs. The bigger collective franchises of Disney, Star Wars, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the DC superhero films, and Harry Potter feel oppressive and all-encompassing because that they do not want you to leave. They need to have something that appeals to demographics, to all demographics, while accounting to, for them aging out as well. The way the fan game metagame has produced, or sorry, the fandom metagame has produced, the attachment to these characters and settings is intense, and with Riot Games' Runeterra setting, it's engineered that way on purpose. When new League of Legends characters come out, I often notice how easy they are to cosplay, i.e. human designs, anime-inspired hair or looks, and non-crazy armor. So for, like, construction purposes, people can replicate them fairly easy, or in a very low-budget way. And how friendly they are to shipping, so romance fanfiction, or people pairing different characters to each other. This availability leverages creators who skew a female, who then do free advertising for the games in terms of fan works. If enough people are passionate about a property, they'll bring in their friends through a network effect. You don't want to be the only person in your circle playing Dota 2 if all of your friends are playing League of Legends. You might be left out, you might miss out on valuable bonding. So you find something that interests you in that scene, and that one hero's lore, or the way a hero plays, might be enough to hook you. This system has some pros and cons. The more invested in audiences in a specific franchise, the easier it is to convince them to try new things, and spend money on things they're already attached to. If I like a character in League, and play them every time I go into the match, I'll buy their skin. If I see that character is available in another title, I'll potentially both try a new game I wouldn't otherwise, and spend money there too. This leads to a diverse amount of experiences to keep burnout at bay while keeping people inside of your ecosystem. If you were a lol gamer in high school but lose the time to binge or lost the time to binge um, because of college or work, they have slower offerings that can be played more casually. But if you do your job too well, you have an entitled audience who has their own beliefs over how the property should be developed, and this can get in the way of your creative freedom. A fan revolt over a character is treated, or God help you, who they decide to fuck, is something that can get out of control quickly, and you don't want to burn the goodwill. If everything comes together like it is for Riot, you not only have a series for, of games for people to spend money on, but a cultural context that allows people to connect over shared experiences. This is where things get into metaverse territory, because the more properties that people have to touch on, the more common it is that they're... Um, that Sorry, the more common it's going to be that people intersect. Another future title is their Project L, which is a fighting game. Fighting games are notoriously difficult for casuals to get into due to their one-on-one -on -one nature and their focus on personal improvement. You will lose because you deserve to, and you're going to have to put in work in order to get better in ways that might not always feel great. If Riot's branding is strong enough, the fact that Project L is part of the Runeterra universe with characters that fans know might be enough to get people to try. Sorry, let me retake that one. If Riot's branding is strong enough, the fact that Project L is part of the Runeterra universe with uh, characters that people know, it might be enough to get people to give it a try when they wouldn't otherwise. I need to like rewrite that sentence. Because of Riot's absurd marketing budgets and potential for esports prizing that dwarfs the biggest current fighting games, pros in that scene will hop ship in terms of stability, or in search of stability, rather. 
This lends it credibility in the eyes of the casual to enthusiast market since fighting games tend to do better when there's high population and more people to play against. If people want to go into a fighting game and they think that the only people they're going to face are like killers and people who have been there since like day one and are going to destroy them, uh, the enthusiasts, like the, the enthusiasm of those people is going to go down. By virtue of just being that thing everyone knows, Riot will add another corner to their web of successful games. People who pick up Project L might have incentive to try out other titles and vice versa. Suddenly, a lifelong Street Fighter player will have this new and shiny thing to talk about that's mainstream, recognized in other gaming circles, and shares enough lore that they can find other people to connect with. They check out the Netflix series Arcane because their main is a character there. They think, hmm, maybe I'm going to buy convention tickets to Riot X when it eventually comes out. I'm going to make a bold prediction and say that's where it's all going. The crystallization of Runeterra as a foundation toward becoming a Riot fan. Maybe that's not bold, considering how Disney have made their parks and convention experience into something grown adults cry over. The main exception to the rule is Valorant, which is cur which curiously doesn't fall into the Runeterra universe. I could see there be some kind, of, sorry, I could see there being some kind of crossover that laces the two franchises together. But it's likely that Riot didn't want to put all their eggs in one basket, weren't call, uh, confident in Valorant's lasting appeal, or just wanted to experiment. When you look at the characters, though, you see the same format. They make them easy to cosplay, make them identifiable with relationships, and have enough representation across a hypothetical player base that an audience member thinks, hey, that's me in that character. Attachment made, relationship started. I come back to the metaverse concept because I'm not trying to say that Riot is suddenly going to start a bank inside their Riot client, like, you know, a physical money bank. Um, or, well, not physical, digital money bank. Obviously, there are limits to what risk they're going to want to take on, but there's nothing stopping them from partnering with MasterCard, who sponsors their esports, for a League of Legends-themed credit card. Oh, wait, they're planning that already. Because of Riot's reach, MasterCard gets new customers, and Riot's ecosystem expands just that little bit more. If an official VR application for the worldwide metaverse does get announced, you can bet that Riot will have skins for it. Live in your favorite character's clothes. Have a way to connect with other fans uh, during the game. Never turn it off. Never unplug. And if you think about doing that, the sunk cost fallacy, or if you think about doing that, if you think about unplugging, the sunk cost fallacy of how much time you spend on skins, how deep your friends uh, are, how deep your friendships are, will be powerful factors keeping you there. This extends to esports as well. The nature of teams means they have an interest in cultivating multiple rosters to serve multiple niches. They will want to take the unifying theme, being their overall brand messaging, and using it as glue to attach people to them long term. The more cumulative support they can glue into their brands, the more powerful bargaining power they have in terms of generating profit, securing sponsors, and forming their own ideology, which is something we're going to go into in a little bit. I'm not about to go on a rant on how this is incredibly evil and manipulative because this isn't this kind of thing isn't kind of uh, sorry. I'm not going to go on a rant about how this is incredibly evil and manipulative because this kind of thing isn't new. It's just when technology, excuse me, becomes ubiquitous and necessary for the involvement in everyday life, the cost to someone not taking part becomes greater and greater. Mastercard already has a large pressure on newer smaller services because your company is basically dead in the water without a payment processor. I just worry about centralization and this cross-pollination because at some point, especially with something becoming as all-encompassing as a metaverse, the whole vote with your wallet thing becomes a less valid of, of an alternative. Basically, you have less leverage because you can't afford not to participate. Mandalore Gaming has a great uh, review, a video reviewing a CRPG, Tyranny, on his channel where he goes into some basic political science theory 
um, through the context of Tunon, an authority figure in the world, and how he might interact with villagers to get what he wants. And in a fun bit of editing, I'm going to take the audio from Mandalore's uh, video and put it in here instead of um, reading out the text that I've quoted in the text version. So, The villagers are working. Tunon comes along and says, Hey, don't grow carrots. If you do, you'll be in legal trouble or you'll get hurt or killed. This is the power of the outcome. Do this or else is blatantly flexing. Everyone knows what's happening, so let's try to be more subtle. Villagers are working again. Along comes Tunon. This time he says, you can grow melons or potatoes. They now have a choice presented they can decide on. Some villagers might really hate melons, so they go all in on potatoes. This is the power of agenda. Tunon isn't even going to bring up carrots and instead give people two options. Anyone who wants carrots is now a fringe weirdo. Most people are thinking about the choices presented. Let's move on to the third face of power. Tunon has influence over media and public education. He won't bother going to the farm. Villagers learn a lot about other crops from their media. Tunon might even slip in some disinformation about carrots in there. Without direct intervention, no one is growing carrots. This is the power of ideology and subconscious, which is absurdly powerful. Your very inner desires are manipulated. Those are the big accepted three, but there is some debate on the fourth one. It's almost too big to tackle. Tunon and the villagers both agree that a carrot is a vegetable. You can buy carrots in markets and you eat them. This is the power of paradigm. Neither of them can directly control this, it controls them. It's a basic idea that everyone agrees with and has no real need to challenge because it's just how it is. Again, not trying to go riot or huge and evil, but all brands have an interest in creating their own agenda and ideology. Creating choices within their framework, melons or potatoes, League of Legends or Legends of Runeterra, removes the option of leaving it. And if there's cross-pollination and benefit to staying within the system in any capacity, Riot wins. If Riot, Disney, or Facebook create an ideology, like a practical online environment product, with their products are the only games in town, sorry, where their, good, uh, their products are the only games in town, and they're controlling the very way that people are interfacing with vital parts of their lives, that whole, without direct intervention, no one is growing carrots, seems a bit more pertinent. The idealized version of a metaverse falls into that power of paradigm situation where everyone plays by the same rules, and it's a basic idea that everyone agrees with and has no real need to challenge. I guess that's the reason why Snow Crash, uh, the Snow Crash metaverse is a dystopia, and the Ready Player One metaverse is conveniently set up by a benevolent yet naive set of ideas, ideals. Excuse me. The conflict in Ready Player One comes from corporate ident entities looking for more control of an idealized free environment. I don't know if we're going to have the same benefit of opposition when we're forced to make the same choice. Uh, thanks for listening. This is the end of the newsletter, housekeeping in the newsletter and here. Um, I've been streaming every Saturday at 3 p.m. EST, so if you want to check it out, you can check out twitch.tv slash mattdemmers. And my Discord is also active, a good place to get push notifications about the stuff that I'm working on. And if you are a supporter, which you are if you're listening to this, you can actually access the one channel in the server where people can talk, which is great. Um, come ask me questions, come talk about things, that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, as usual, these this podcast is nice because I actually have to like read over the, the issue, and sometimes I catch edits. There was um, a point here while I was reading it where I was like, oh my god, this is so messy, but I'm actually really proud of this essay, or uh, proud of this issue. I felt that last week's, or the last issue about legacy was something very kind of surface level, and this is a little bit more experimental. Um, so thanks for listening, thanks for reading, and thanks for kicking me money. We will talk soon. Have a good one.